Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Tanith Carey. She is a parenting writer and award-winning journalist. She is the author of 13 parenting books that have been translated into 20 different languages, including What's My Child Thinking, The Friendship Maze, Taming the Tiger Parent, and Girls Interrupted. She speaks all over the world about parenting and education and child development. Her new book is called What's My Teenager Thinking? Practical Child Psychology for Modern Parents. Really excited to speak with Tanith today about some issues we haven't talked about yet on the podcast, including teenage crushes, what to do when your teenager is bored, and what to do when your teenager says, whatever. Tanith, thank you so much for coming on the show today. So this is part of a series then. This one is What's My Teenager Thinking? And you also have What's My Child Thinking? Yeah. You know, I don't think parents have time to read like massive volumes anymore. They just don't, you know? And I I do think when you're in a row with a teenager, it's really like, it's really upsetting and it's actually really scary. And I, I just think you need to go like, okay, right. What does the evidence say? You know, how can I calm myself down? How can I see that this is not the end of the world? You know, that's the point of it, you know? So all the studies this is based on are put in a separate appendix which is online so people can go and do some further research but what we try to do with this book is compress all of the best psychology in a way that parents can access it really quickly in the moment not based on my opinion it's based on evidence and science and brought together in a way that you know parents can use really quickly and it's super actionable and like each issue is one spread so it's boiled down to the essence of the issue and has just really, really practical advice on everything. So how, I guess, did you decide on what all the topics were to cover in here? Well, what's also different about this book is it just doesn't lump in teenagers altogether. Yeah, it divides them into three different phases. Absolutely. So that gave us some framework. And then I think, you know, as you said, it was a very big team. So we collaboratively boiled down the most common scenarios that we were facing together to try and make them as representative as possible. So yeah, there's over a hundred everyday situations you'll face with your team there. So, okay. Talk to me about the three different stages of teenage development and why you went ahead and actually further broke the teenagers down into kind of these three subsections. Yeah, exactly. I'm really glad you appreciated that because, I mean, there's too often people just say teens, teenagers. Or maybe they throw tweens in there as a one differentiator. That's true. But like once they get to sort of 13 or 14, people just say teenagers. So I really wanted to look at how they evolve. I mean, the difference between how a 13 year old would react to a situation compared to an 18 year old is, is, is nice and day. You know? Yeah, right. 
And also what I found in the research was that 14 is probably the most challenging time. And then after that, there's a little bit more perspective taking. Things are seen as a little bit less black and white. So I think that I also want to show that there's a kind of momentum that builds. And then gradually, you know, if your relationship is going well, that can kind of just calm a little bit. <laughs> so by the time kids are 18, they usually have a little bit more life experience, a little bit more perspective. They're a little bit less influenced by peer pressure. They're more their own person. So I wanted to sort of show this kind of curve. It's funny because it, it is like, and as you read through it, you can like totally get a feel for each period and how it's distinctive. And there is, you know, evidence that the need for autonomy peaks at age 14 and the age 13 and 14 phase is really different than the, you know, 17, 18 year olds. We had this chat box on our website for a while where parents could pop in and just ask us questions. And uh, <laughs> it was really illuminating to see. But what we really found is that, you know, the parents who came in and were just like, oh my gosh, red alert, you know, my teenager is just totally gone off the deep end and I can't get them under control. When we said, well, how old is your kid? It was always 13 or 14. Yeah. <laughs> always you know without fail and it could have been a boy could have been a girl but always uh was in that age group so i thought that was really interesting if we could give some perspective that okay it is going to get better that would also help right this is a phase that's natural it's only two years long it's not like the entire teenage years it's like this is actually a sub phase that i'm going through yeah yeah it's going to be different in a, in in one year even because things are changing so fast during this period of life People talk about teen dating, but really that's a broad term that really, really changes depending on the exact age of the teenager. So I thought that was cool that you pointed out the idea of a crush and how this is kind of the first phase in that 12, 13, 14 year old phase. Dating romance shows up in the form of this crush. Yeah, they're almost practicing those romantic feelings. I mean, they're very, they're very much idealize those kinds of relationships. And then the next phase is that they will start to be friends and then, but they'll tell you they're just friends even when they're dating because they don't want to come out publicly. <laughs> no, no, we're just talking. We're just friends. And... Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they yeah. can be dating for three months and, the, and your kid will still be saying, oh yeah, we're just friends because they don't want to put themselves out there yet with you because they know that is a big transition for you as well because you see right. them as a child and they know that that's kind of, that's a big shift for you to deal with. So they're also kind of, trying to respect your need to get used to stuff as well. So I thought this was really interesting. What you were talking about in the crush section here was kind of giving your teen some context and thinking about, you know, uh, the other person that you're having the crush on being a full human being, not just an object to be lusted over. But I think, you know, in the teenage years, you get like so caught up in this like idealized version of this person in your head. So what can you do to kind of help them see beyond that or to kind of develop some context? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that we do have to take these relationships quite seriously because they feel intensely real to your teenager at the time. So I think the tendency is that, you know, when we get married and have kids and we're older and uh, we, we remember the intense feelings, but we tend not to think they're very important. Right. Oh, yeah. You'll get over it. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think the main thing is just to be listening and not dismissive, not make fun 
you know, not go, oh, there he is, was your, was your boyfriend there, that kind of stuff, I think, to really listen and let them process and let those, that logical part of the brain kind of also kick in when they talk about it, you know, access both parts, you know, and let it run its course. I mean, the whole point about this book is, you know, we're very conscious of the development of babies and toddlers, but we've become less so um, the developmental stages of the teenage years. So just yeah. see this as, as an important developmental step. It's almost a practicing of strong emotions. It's, uh, you know, it would be too much for a young teenager to have those emotions back. So they also have, they almost have to practice it in one way form. Do you know what I mean? Before they're ready for the, for the real thing. So this is just a step in the right direction. Another one that I liked in here was on bullying and uh, on if your teen is the victim of bullying. But actually, I just kind of really zeroed in on something that you had on here just as one of the suggestions, which I thought was really cool. And you wrote on page 63 to encourage self-questioning. Questions such as, what would I say if I wasn't afraid? And how is this teasing holding me back in sports can prompt him to act? And I thought that was just such a cool suggestion. And I wonder where that came from. And if you could expand it all on self-questioning and any other ways that parents could use that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've also written a book um, on friendship called The Friendship Mage, which looks at, uh, re-examines what bullying is. I mean, I talk about how I think we're, as parents and um, educators, we're very keen to call bullying very quickly. But actually, there's a certain amount of social conflict, which is going to be inevitable. So rather than sort of ratchet up the tension levels by throwing accusations around, it's much better to try and empower your child to sort of to deal with it and to assert themselves in the face of it. I think the problem with uh, many teens have with bullying is they feel that they are, because the peer group is so important to them, they feel very marked out, like there's something wrong with them, they'll never be accepted. So this is a whole load of other emotion which is on top of it. So I try and deconstruct this in the book and just say that, well, bullying is really only bullying if it's, if it's one commonly powerful peer against a much socially weaker peer and it's deliberately meant to cause harm so that we can put it in context. In order to assert yourself, I think teenagers have to kind of dig deep. There's no point telling your child, oh, you have to go and tell him to back off. You know, they have to see how this kind of social behavior is affecting them and whether or not it's getting in the way of what they need to do. So in all my books, I talk about how it's not just enough for parents to tell teenagers or children things, they have to work it out for themselves. So a lot of this book is about encouraging that kind of self-questioning so that they can come up with these ideas for themselves. Because, you know, teenagers know what will work in a social situation and what won't work. As an adult, you don't know that, you know, so that's why it's really important to brainstorm with them tactics that might work. The whole book is about talking with teens in an open way and getting those conversations and that timing right i mean if your child has come home and is really upset that they've been bullied that's not the right time to talk about tactics it's more the time to listen <laughs> but at a time at a neutral time when they're open to suggestions and that they feel secure and safe with you then that's the time to talk about what they can do to address the situation or claim back their power i suppose I mean, one thing I learned from the friendship maze is that, and I think probably it's more accepted in America than in England, but children form themselves into social hierarchies quite early. And a lot of this kind of tension is about battles to rise up those social hierarchies and feeling alone at the bottom of those social hierarchies. 
I draw a lot on the work of Rosalind Wiseman, for example, who I know you've spoken to, just so that they can understand and if they can name their place within these social circles and, and understand how the dynamics and the web, web works, they feel more in control and less victimized by it. Yeah, because also just the environment we throw them into in middle school and high school is such social dynamics on steroids, you know, and we put so many of them together in this one place where it's just of course, strong hierarchies are going to form <laughs> human beings in general, but especially teenagers. I mean, so it's kind of like the perfect storm, you know, to really create a system of winners and losers. And the trouble is, is when teenagers are forming their sense of identity. So, you know, if they uh, get stuck at the bottom. You get this sense that you're a loser or that you're just not cool, but that's just happened to be, you know, this artificial situation that we threw you into. And then you get out of that and that still is part of your self-perception of who you are, even though it's not really relevant, you know, to the situations you're going to find yourselves in later so i agree and that's why i think out of school friendships are so important because you know i think the microcosm of school is quite false it's not a natural place yeah. to be in many ways so i think that when kids have friends out of school that are in that hierarchy that that can shore up their self-worth and their feelings that they are they are likable outside of that rather kind of intense system So this was me as a teenager. This is so boring. Uh, you have a whole page on this issue, teenagers feeling bored. And I noticed actually it's kind of a theme that emerges in some of the other situations as well. This brain chemistry phase of the dopamine addicts really craving that dopamine hit. And so really feeling like, you know, normal everyday situations kind of are sort of lame. And then on top of that, this kind of concept that when it's some sort of activity that you know you uh put together or you sanctioned they kind of feel like it's their way to show independence by being bored by it or by you know being uh, too cool for it or being over it a little bit i thought that was cool and then another point which is relevant today which is that you know if teens are using their phones all the time normally to entertain themselves whenever they get bored then they haven't had to develop that muscle of you know entertaining themselves or of dealing with that boredom in a productive way so when they're saying mom so bored um you know that's a a symptom and a cue that they probably need to work on that skill a little bit and so for you as a parent instead of being angered by that to be interested or to be curious and to say ah so my teen is bored so that probably means like one of these other things is maybe going yeah. on i think they feel very uncomfortable being bored and i don't think they know what to do with those feelings of discomfort yeah. What I say throughout the book is, I mean, obviously with with the lockdown and kids being at home a lot, they've been on video games and phones a lot more. So, but I mean, what I like to do is, I think as a family is frame the tech free time as, as a treat, you know what I mean? Like not, not a deprivation, That's cool. not a punishment, you know, like this is a time where we all put our phones away. And actually, I, I think if you are forging a good relationship with your teenager, they actually don't mind that. I mean, if, if you can actually show that you do want to engage with them, you are interested in what they want to do. You're not trying to direct them to any kind of improvement activity. You just want to be with them on their terms. Actually, we, we tend to think that they do find this boring but actually they don't if we're really engaged with them i don't think we've had a time where they've needed we've needed to understand them more and we needed to connect with them more 
what's incredibly important about this book is that we also do what you might be thinking so that any biases or prejudices or panic or anxiety that we are feeling you know we don't bring that to the table we can see our teens as they are not through our the prism of our anxiety or our concern or you know i, I just think as a, as a as a parental group this generation is very very wound up very worried you know, and that makes us more triggered about things. And then we're more triggered and our teens are more anxious. So we've got a kind of, as you say, the perfect storm also. We're just yeah. winding each other up, you know. Sure. You make a good point in here that if you're seeing a lot of this boredom from your teenager, it's also maybe a symptom that this same sort of thing that's happening in their brains, this need for sensation seeking is also a risk for experimenting with drugs and alcohol in order to create excitement and simulation. So... Instead of, you know, deflecting your teenager or shutting them down when they come to you, you know, complaining about being bored, it's actually like maybe a really important thing to like look for and tune in for because that's like a, it's like a precursor, you know, if you can catch them when they're just bored before they start experimenting with all the drugs and redirect them back then, Mm -hmm. that's maybe kind of a good time to do it. So I thought that was really savvy. No, absolutely. And then also to just not say there's nothing wrong with being bored. It doesn't make, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a time that they can have like real downtime and a chance to feel, to think in less pressured ways, you know, to yeah. see, I mean, if they feel those, those feelings, I mean, say, well, it's boredom, but it might be also a state of deep relaxation. You know, it's a time when your mind can go blank. This is when you're going to have ideas and thoughts and, and you can do things that you wouldn't otherwise be doing. So I think the boredom has a very negative connotation and I think we need to reclaim that for ourselves and for our teenagers. I think as adults, we tend to sort of panic at the idea of boredom because we think we have to be constantly busy and that's partly um, why we are also stressed. I mean, and I also think we think our teens have to be constantly busy, but we would just like them to be busy at the things that we think are good for them. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Right, so right. I think a little bit of a, of a pause, let's think of it as a boredom as a useful pause, a creative thought rather than a failing as a parent or a failing as a teenager. So, of course, one of the issues of modern parenting is you can't control what your kids are seeing and being exposed to. And that's definitely a theme in this book that I see emerge in a number of these things. When you talk about pornography, uh, you also just have a page called I Saw This Picture, which is about the very real possibility of seeing something really disturbing and distressing that you're not expecting and that you're not ready for. And as a young mind, it can be really, really, really impactful. You write in here that some of these images are so shocking that it could take six months for the image to leave your teen's mind. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what uh, kind of images are we talking about and how does this occur and what do you do? Well, there's so much on the internet, isn't there, that they could come across. I'm also talking about things like animal cruelty, uh, as well as, as pornography. I mean, around my parenting books, I've written 12 now, I've written a lot about pornography and the effect on, effect on young minds. And every, every time I look at it, and I'm a you know 53-year-old mom, I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be seeing that through the eyes of a, of a young person who's never had sex, never had a relationship. And that's why I think we need to um, talk in age-appropriate ways. Uh, about what they might come across so it's not just that massive shock to the system that they will get otherwise I mean there's research that says it actually scars the brain and that sounds hyper hyperbolic but the shock of seeing something like that and all the kind of 
the wiring that involves um, means that it can be quite profound. And if you ask people in later life, most of them can remember the first very hardcore pornographic image they saw. So I think it's really important. I've got two girls aged 15 and 18, and from a young age, I've always said that this might be something that they stumble across because obviously originally children don't go looking for this stuff. It basically, they click on the wrong link or they're shown it by a peer. And just to really put those images in context and just say, well, you know, these in the same way that action scenes are not real in a movie, um, pornographic sex is not what sex is all about. And you will see things that some people do sometimes, but it's not really what sex making love is all about. So just verbally to explain that to them, you know, and unfortunately it is inevitable that they will come across it. So just get them in a state of readiness for that. Right. And also, you know, if they have seen something I talk in the book, if you know that's disturbing, as I say, it can take up to six months. So what you have to do is also to try and help them replace those images, which are kind of recurring in their minds with more positive images so that they can move on from that. Um, and obviously don't scold them for having seen it or for having opened a link, because obviously they won't right. come back to you next time they come across that kind of material. Yeah, that seems like a theme in a lot of this stuff is that you just, when they come to you with it, whatever it is, you have to be just really cool about it, really make them feel like at ease. And one of the the first kind of tip that you have for a lot of these about how you should respond is by, you know, listening and really tuning into how they're feeling and uh, I think what as, they're going um, through. a parent of a child or a teenager, it's actually more important, not what you say, but what you don't say. I mean, I think when we hear our teenagers tell us stuff, we want to leave, we want to jump in out of a place of worry and say, no, do this, or that's not the case, or no, no, you know. I think we just do have to kind of just listen and let them download without criticism and without judgment. And I also think criticism, I talk a lot about in the book, I mean, it's really what defines your relationship. If your teenager feels criticised, that's when they start to turn away in order to protect themselves from the pain of disappointing you. Yeah. So we tend to generalize a lot about teenagers and, and moan a lot about them, talk about how they're a, a group to be dreaded and feared. But actually, you know, I think, I think if we keep an eye on their development and see like when they were toddlers, you know, when they were babies, when they started to walk, we can see that they're making steps. But, you know, because it's not that clear when a teenager is making that step. But if you look out for it, if you look about look out for them when they suddenly start to react to a situation, not by shouting and swearing at you, but with a, in a, with a more reasonable attitude, or if they yeah. are more self-motivated, if they start to do their biology homework without being nagged, you know, these are all steps in the right direction. These all need acknowledgement. But I, I think that in our panic as parents, we worry about them so much. We think we have to be their kind of like life coach. Right, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, they forget that we're saying this out of a place of love, but they just feel deeply criticized. And when they feel criticized and labeled, it's very much harder to get through to them because they, they move away. So I think a lot of this book is about trying to contain our own impulses to do that mm. and really listen because, and have more trust because they really want, they really want our trust, but very, we, we don't really give that to them. I don't know. They kind of just feel that they're never going to be good enough for us. So it's not worth trying. I think that's increasingly the, the case in, in the, the times we're living in. We're here with Tanith Carey talking about her new book, What's My Teenager Thinking? And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I mean, obviously, peer pressure is massively, has always been important to the development of teenagers, but basically it's now been magnified 5,000 times on like social media because it's also visible. 
What happens when your teenager wants you to stop following them <laughs> on social media? Yeah, I think um, that is a good question. It's like it it's the new version of mom dropped me off at the end of the street. <laughs> so, right? <laughs> what I talk to about teens is the fact that, you know, the cigarette industry have moved into vaping as a way to get a new young cohort of customers and actually yeah. they think they're evading adult control but in fact they are just basically they're just using products which are made by by the firms that have made the tobacco cigarettes and wanting to make money out of them you know what i mean right yeah so i think i'm using that kind of natural anti-authoritarian bent that they yeah, just have to right. see the bigger picture about what they're doing you know so i mean this is really passive aggressive behavior and it ah. works quite well because you're just stuck at what to say <laughs> Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.